I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. A weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with maximum firepower. For you and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. Today we will be looking at the Bruce Springsteen song, The Ghost of Tom Joad, and American Class Consciousness. Consider the themes that Springsteen was tackling in 1994 in his song, The Ghost of Tom Joad. They appear to be taken from today's headlines. Immigration and human rights, lack of health care, systemic racism and racist domestic terrorism, debt, bankruptcy, immiseration, homelessness, state-sponsored and police violence and harassment, routine poverty and hunger, the loss of livelihood, and the gutting of the American middle class. Springsteen's The Ghost of Tom Joad has elevated the story from Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath novel into a timeless blueprint for solidarity and class consciousness. Uniquely suited to the American experience in connecting biblical, 20th century historical, and present-day oppression and poverty. From the plaintive acoustic ballad to the roaring guitar crescendo version, it is a song and a story that continues to resonate through the decades. Steinbeck's novel, written in 1939 during the depths of the Great Depression, won the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize. The Jodes were a Dust Bowl refugee family from Oklahoma, derisively known as Okies by bullies and critics, such as Woody Guthrie knew and sang about so well. The Jodes are a poor family of tenant farmers, driven from their Oklahoma home by drought, economic hardship, agricultural industry changes, and bank foreclosures forcing tenant farmers out of work. Tom Jode is the second son, getting out of prison for a homicide in self-defense when the story opens. When Tom arrives home, he meets Casey the Preacher, the farm is dusty and deserted. Mom and Pa Joe turn out to be packing for a trek to California and the promise of a better life. The scene evokes Mark's phrase about capitalism. All that is solid melts into air, even family, land, and livelihood. Tom lights out with his extended family, Ma and Pa, Casey, Tom, his two brothers, his pregnant sister and her husband, and the grandparents. They have some hope for California as the promised land. On Route 66, they meet other dispossessed, staying in makeshift camps. We see a kind of class solidarity, sharing scarce food and information in the campfire light. The road exacts a human toll. Grandpa dies a day out, and they bury him in a field, again trying to maintain communitarian values and dignity even under extreme duress. Grandma dies crossing the Mojave Desert. Ma Joe takes up the role of leader of the family, showing the strength and toughness of unsung matriarchal women. Once in Cali, the eldest son, Noah, leaves the family, and the husband of pregnant sister, Rose of Sharon, abandons her. In California, the diminished Jode clan and preacher Casey find no refuge from what they left behind in Oklahoma. Instead, market forces and raw greed of the planters are wreaking havoc again. There's a huge oversupply of labor, which pushes wages down. Workers are exploited and starving, living in makeshift jungle camps. Worse, the company stores charge jacked-up prices to their captive customers. Often, pay is doled out only in script, leaving them poorer and poorer, hungrier and hungrier. All police and state law enforcement authorities are on the side or in the pocket of the big growers, keeping the migrant workers down. This radicalizes Preacher Casey, whose idea of the gospel of Christ is one of justice and equality. Here's where 
The Grapes of Wrath shows the kind of Sophie's choice, like conundrums forced on workers by market forces and political actors. It's the pivot point of the narrative, with the desperate and death-haunted Jodes taking up work as strike-breakers and scabs in a peach orchard, while Casey becomes radicalized and takes up as a labor organizer after beating down a cop who is going to kill a fellow worker. Steinbeck depicts contrast between the labor jungle camps and the New Deal-sponsored encampment where the workers are safe and adequately cared for. The suggestion that capital's interests and peoples are diametrically opposed, and while local authorities and agents of the state side with the bosses and perpetrate brutality on working people, the federal government of FDR is in the people's corner, and the tension between various official state actors engenders a feeling of civil war based on class interest. The peach plantation bosses announce the pay will be cut in half. Casey gets involved in the resultant strike, which the cops and vigilantes turn violent. Tom witnesses Casey beaten to death by a cop. Tom avenges Casey, killing the cop, leaving a preacher and a police officer dead, and farm worker Tom on the run. In the wake of the deaths, the Jodes leave the orchard to work on a cotton farm, and Tom knows that he can't stay and must leave the area or risk being caught and his family blacklisted from working. Tom bids Ma farewell and vows to work for the oppressed. This is where the dramatic last verse from the Bruce tune comes from. From the moment it was published in 1939, Steinbeck's sprawling novel of social consciousness had simultaneously intrigued and repulsed Hollywood. As a bestseller, it carried great box office potential, but the book's powerful economic analysis alienated movie moguls, most of whom were extremely conservative. The big California growers protested the novel, tried to get it taken off of shelves, and protested Hollywood even taking any chances at making a film that would show the evil underbelly of their industry for what it was. Steinbeck wrote to his agent, I'm quite sure no picture company would want this new book whole, and it is not for sale in any other way. It pulls no punches at all and may get us all into trouble, but if so, so be it. Daryl F. Zanuck, the head of production at 20th Century Fox, took a gamble on making the movie. Zanuck tabbed John Ford, a veteran director of Americana movies, to helm the film. The result was a movie considered a true work of American proletariat art that delivered Tom Joe's message to the masses. At the end of the movie, transformed by all he's seen in the camps and the fields, Tom tells his family he must take up Casey's mission by fighting for the rights of workers. He leaves to join the struggle as part of the movement of social justice. Compared to Springsteen's verse, Tom Joad's words definitely ring a little more optimistic or saccharine in the film, depending on your point of view. Steinbeck's book got made into an enduring work of art and it reached a mass audience, a trade-off between purity of consciousness and scale and scope of consciousness, which ironically Bruce Springsteen has been navigating and calculating his entire career. As a fan, watching this tightrope walk has been a wild ride, but where he's come out increasingly since 2006 is a place that's more explicitly political, but never not wrapped in his big embracing arms and his earnest loving heart. By not succumbing to the stress of occupying these two divergent worlds, Bruce has graced us with a trove of great folk art. His understanding of the personal side of what's happening in politics sets him apart from explicitly political singer-songwriters. While his political engagement from a humanist perspective make him a more relevant and significant tunesmith than even the best miniaturist or confessional songwriters. From the River, Atlantic City, Youngstown, State Trooper, Nebraska, My Hometown, Factory, Born in the USA, Independence Day, Sinaloa Cowboys, and The Ghost of Tom Joad, Bruce is doing what I believe is the only responsibility of an artist. Tell the truth as you see it, unsparingly. 
All my heroes are late with their payments. I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower. It's a great honor to have here on Maximum Firepower my good friend Jake Clemens of the E Street Band. Jake, how are you, sir? I'm great. Good to see you, man. Good to see you, too. Good to talk um, to you. Yeah, good to talk to you as well uh, in, in a semi-official capacity. So, so Jake, for, for <laughs> listeners who are maybe sort of more unfamiliar, uh, Jake Clemens is the nephew of Clarence Clemens, the longtime saxophonist of the E Street Band. On this particular episode of Maximum Firepower, we're talking specifically about the song The Ghost of Tom Joad. So were you aware of either the Bruce Springsteen acoustic version of the song, Ghost of Tom Joad, or the Rage Against the Machine cover of Ghost of Tom Joad before you were involved in the E Street Band personally? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The way that I became aware of it, I, I believe, was when the news hit that Rage was covering a Bruce song. And there was like a weird period for me uh, as a kid growing up where, you know, in 1989, all of a sudden, like, my uncle wasn't, like, touring with Bruce anymore. And, like, you know, as a kid who looked up to my uncle so much, I took personal offense to it (laughs) at the time, you know? It was like, what the heck, man? You know, and I kind of, like, turned the page for a few years. You know, so finding out that Rage Against the Machine was doing this song was, like, really interesting to me. And that's how I got introduced to... um, to that record in itself uh yeah yeah but then you know obviously like i, I came around and, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah really fell deep into the catalog you know right um, right 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 well i mean that's how that's how i like bruce and i had been acquainted but it wasn't until rage covered ghost of tom jenna we had to like go to him for um approval because it was such a radically different version than the original as as a cover mm-hmm. as a huge bruce fan like i've rarely been more nervous than like waiting for that you know like you may not use the song or you may use the song and then you know he sent back a couple sentences of he was surprised the thing that i found interesting is like you know you only live in your own head and i'm a bruce springsteen fan Mm -hmm. and i play in rage against them i I like the bruce springsteen acoustic records and i play in rage against the machine that makes perfect sense to me he was very surprised that that was the particular song that rage against the machine had singled out you know as, as as one to cover um you know, and to radically reimagine. So then the next time we saw each other in person, we had a lot more to talk about. You know, that sort of began yeah. the beginning of a, of, a, of a more a solid friendship rather than me just being a fan at, you know, the Sony Grammy after party or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious as to why, why do you think he was surprised at that? So, I mean, because, like, for me, like, uh, I mean, I, I guess maybe, like, some songs in Nebraska, but, like, aside from that, like, it seemed like a, an extremely appropriate song for Rage to cover. Yeah, but I mean, I just don't know that he knew at the time that that was the kind of record that I would have in my catalog, uh, like an, a, a, folk, a folk album, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. And and so that was, I think that was the, the source of the, he was, he, I think he was very, he was excited by the fact that a band like Rage would pluck that, pluck something off of that album, you know, yeah. the, 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 the sparest album, you know, it's even spare in some ways than, in Nebraska, you know, it's, it's quieter in some ways than Nebraska. Um, would pick that particular song to, to cover, but anyway, that began the right. that began that uh friendship and eventually playing together uh, in 2008. When was the first time that you were in the room with Ghost of Tom Joad with me playing it with the band? Yeah, that would have been on tour, man. That on tour, been, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've been night one in Australia, yeah, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, was it? Yeah, yeah. that would have been that uh that cathartic uh, first time that I, or, or that, was that it, I experienced or that. Or was it, were you, were you in the band like doing like the, the South by Southwest shows and things like that? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so maybe it was then because I think that was that was that was prior. Okay, you being on the stage playing it with me in that role was the first time I had heard it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's and funny because I forget about the promo stuff that we did beforehand. You know, right, it, right, it, right, right. It all rolls over into the same thing, right, uh, in my head. And so, and so, what was your what was your thought? I mean, you had you you had, you were fairly new to the band at that point. Was that the first tour? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that yeah, would have yeah, been. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was a promo show, technically, right? I mean, we played the right. Apollo, and then we did that. Yep. I, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. It's the timeline. Yeah, so you were um, brand new to the band the first time as a as a member of the band the first time yeah, yeah. you were in the room with Ghost. So you probably had a lot on your mind other than going like, "Oh, what a brilliant guitar solo." <laughs> well, no, I mean, uh, I believe at that time the horn section was a uh, like we we'd actually exit the stage, I believe, um, mm, mm-hmm. during that song, which allowed me, you know. Uh, to be able to envelop the experience completely. And, it, you know, for sure you would have seen me just, like, rocking out super hard, uh, yeah. you know, and, 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 and like, you know, the just like the audience, you know, my eyes big and my jaw on the floor. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I tend to get a little bit uh, animated when I get excited about things. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it didn't stop there. I mean, like, you know, c- consistently, um, it's amazed me how you're able to get into that that tune specifically and just and i mean i i at this point i've heard you play i don't know hundreds of times yeah with, maybe with yeah maybe a hundred maybe a hundred <laughs> times yeah yeah <laughs> and like every single time it's just like the energy in the in the entire space just it always increases 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 and builds yeah. and it's always uh it, it, i don't know it's like a sense of like euphoria and it's 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 yeah. it's impressive to me that that, that 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 happens yeah it's a crazy it's you know it really speaks to like sort of the chemistry not just of the band but of like the of all the vectors that came together to make that version of the song the thing that it is it's the you know it's the steinbeck story you know it's mm-hmm. the it's the uh the poetry of bruce's original version it's the audacity of Rage Against the Machine, you know, rageifying that version. And then it's mm-hmm. Bruce's arrangement of that kind of hybrid version that's, yeah. that's played. And then also the, I don't know, the, you know, Bruce is a, is a, is a, uh, a generous front man. Like he'll give you 82 bars to solo and blow the roof mm-hmm. off a of play. You know what I mean? Like, like he's not yeah, threatened yeah. by that. Yeah. You know, he's like, this yeah. is going to be it- fucking awesome. Just keep going. You know, and that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. As long as you're blowing the roof off. As long as you're blowing the roof, <laughs> you don't you don't get eighty two bars. You don't get 82 bars. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. Now, now I'm now I'm fairly confident that it's going to be in the eighty to eighty two bar range. But I remember the, the the first time that that I played it, like I just kept looking up. Like, are we done yeah. now? Are we done now? And he's like, go, go. I'm like, go. I'm like, go. Like my solos in you know Rage Against the Machine, Audio Slave. You know they t- I, they're concise and they may, it might be eight bars at the most. It's sixteen bars. Sometimes it's it's four. You got to say what you want to say and make the yeah. artistic statement in a you know in a in a narrower bandwidth. And I think that too is one of the. And, and while a lot of the stuff that I have played, whether it's improvised or whether it was pre thought out during that solo, are not you know it's not new notes to me, and it's not new scritchy scratch on the guitar, but the recontextualization of my kind of playing with a chord progression like that. Mm-hmm. Is something that w- w- created, I think, the unexpected balance of chemistry that makes the song exciting. The, combined with those other vectors of the Steinbeck story and you know, and Bruce's poetry, yeah. and that makes it something that is you know really sort of 
surprised everybody. And um, yeah, it was explosive. Yeah. I have two questions for you on that. Yeah. The first one is when you introduced that song, like just knowing the background of Rage. Yeah. When you introduced that song to the band, how did that go down exactly? <laughs> <laughs> it went down exactly like this. I'm I'm here I'm here to tell you. <clears throat> The um, we were set to go on tour with U2 and open up for the Pop Mart tour in 1997. Uh, we hadn't put out, we didn't have a new. We had just toured the U.S. on the Evil Empire record, and we're about to play the same cities again with no no new material. Um, at, for for a Christmas present, I had given. I was so in love with that record. I had given Zach uh, the cassette, the Ghost of Tom Joad cassette, and just said. Check this out. Like, this is my favorite record since, I think I, I said the exact words were, this is my favorite record since Jane's Addiction's Nothing Shocking, which really means, that record means a lot to me. <laughs> and he kind of yeah, looked yeah. at me like, he kind of, like, I don't think he really, he really knew, like, my love of Bruce Springsteen at the time, but he checked it out and was really moved by Sinaloa Cowboys and, you know, Youngstown and songs like that. And so it was, in, it was in his consciousness. So we were in rehearsals kind of running through our set, which at the time looked a lot like the set we had just played in those, those same cities. I said, what are we... There's a song called Ghost of Tom Joad. I'd written the lyrics out on a piece of paper. Like, why don't we rageify this? And, you know, there were a couple of, like, eyebrows went up. Like, what? Saying, let's, not, let's not listen to the original version. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that okay. at all. Okay. Don't worry about that at all. Let's, make, really a rage, let's make a Rage Against the Machine song. And, you know, and, and, and Zach, in, I don't know if you've seen the, like, Zach inhabits that thing in a yeah, yeah, yeah. tremendously powerful authentic and compelling way mm-hmm. you know because it's a you know it's a story it's a story that it's a story that has that is analogous to stories that he tells in his brilliant lyrics too and yeah and so you know when we rock that song across the, the united states opening for you too and um you know there are you two fans who the Many U2 fans that were wholly unfamiliar with Rage Against the Machine, but are but they are Bruce Springsteen fans. Those two circles overlap considerably sure. more. And they, I, I remember watching their faces as you know, here, oh, it's another Rage Against the Machine. Oh, there's another Black Sabbath riff with a funky beat. Right? And then they would, you could see them. They were hearing the lyrics to the Ghost of Tom Joad, and they were hearing Bruce Springsteen lyrics sung by that band. And you could tell like there was like a bit of a like existential crisis among some of the U2 fans as they're like, here's this band that like. I was prepared to dismiss, and yet they're singing a Bruce Springsteen song. I may have to reconsider. I remember wow. seeing that throughout throughout that. Wow, yeah. that's a big move. One other question is: uh, when E Street plays that song, and Tom's on stage, you're up there with us, and you're freaking shredding it. And then there's a lyric where uh, where where Bruce says, and Tom says, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then he and then he continues to sing. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, did that catch you off guard the first time that happened? No, did you no, 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 like, no, no, no. Because he's, he's, okay, he's telling the story. Be... You know, he's telling the, he's 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 John Steinbeck in that moment. He's telling, oh, he's telling the story. He's like Tom will be in, in in about eight bars. Tom will be up. He'll be up and just say, <laughs> yeah. Tom's gonna be singing pretty soon anyway. He's gonna be. He's gonna yeah, be <laughs> I think it keeps people in the story. You know, yeah, doing yeah, it that way. Yeah. I think it's brilliant that way. Yeah. Um, but it always kind of like it always triggers a moment for me in, in my head every time it happens. This right, is like, it does. It does add a perhaps a, a bit of confusion towards it. Like he's right there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right. Well, thanks very much, Jake. We're going to continue talking about uh, go to Tom Joe. But thank you very much uh, for being on the show, uh, Jake Clemens. Everybody. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. 
Another very memorable evening playing the Ghost of Tom Joad was at uh, Madison Square Garden at the 25th anniversary of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I got a text from Bruce. Bruce is very sort of brief in his text. He says, you want to come to MSG and rock Tom Joad with me? I'm like, hell yes, I do. <laughs> so, I, so I fly out there and it's just me and my guitar tech and we go to the uh, rehearsal where the rehearsal place is and, and I'm in the hallway and you know, Bruce didn't mention anything about what the event even was. I thought it was a Springsteen show. And there's like Metallica was walking by and U2 walks by and there's like Billy Joel and his entourage and and there's Simon and Garf. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, And, and so when I go in there, he, he, you know, they explain that, oh, it's for this kind of big TV show and this pr- production where all the, you know, these members, these inductees of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are all going to play. I'm like, well, what am I doing here, man? <laughs> so, you know, we rehearsed the song and by this point we've kind of got it under our belts and it sounds great, great in rehearsal. Let me tell you a little bit about Madison Square Garden backstage. So there's like eight main dressing rooms backstage, like on the the good side where you want to be at Madison Square Garden. And there's all these acts playing, like tremendous luminaires. In my dressing room are packed Sting and B.B. King and John Legend and Sam of Sam and Dave and a whole bunch. We're all just, we're all in one, we're all happy to be there. We're all happy to be there. I ordered pizza in, we're all happy to be there. But then, you know, and Bruce has a dressing room, of course, you know, and then like, then, then like I looking at the doors, I'm saying like, well, who's in these other dressing rooms? And uh, uh, Paul Simon has his own dressing room. And I look next door, I'm like, oh my gosh, Art Garfunkel has his own dressing room too. <laughs> like it's a real, it's a real, you can really sort of see where the, where the gravitas was in the in the evening, but I was just like uh, like a wallflower standing there as all these luminaries were walking by, and a couple of weird things happened that night. Once somebody came up to me and I I'd done this other show with Bruce at for Pete Seeger's 90th birthday, and like, hey, you you sang off key when you know you were singing that you know Bruce with with Bruce at the Pete Seeger thing. I'm like, uh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Somebody else was like, "Yeah, why are you playing with the Bruce with the E Street Band anyway? You know, there's a lot of guitar players in that band anyway. What do you do? What do you?" I'm like, uh, "Thanks a lot." And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go up there. I got one job tonight. Much like that first night in Anaheim, it's just to sing a social justice song with conviction, to play a guitar solo, and tr- you know, when Bruce gives me the nod, try to blow the roof off of this joint. So anyway, we played that song, and it was really one of the most memorable versions of it. And uh, not long afterwards, I was on tour with Bruce Springsteen in Australia, and he wanted to do a, a studio version of the electric Ghost of Tom Joad. So one day I got a text. He says, I need you to go to the studio. It's about an hour and a half away, you know, and, and shred it up. And that's, you know, on that day I went up there. Engineer Nick Dia was in the studio. I ripped the Ghost of Tom Joad solo, and then I doubled it. I thought, you know what? The one thing this guitar solo needs is an exact duplicate of that guitar solo playing at the same time. We panned those hard left and right and got what I think is a very formidable version of the song on record on the High Hopes album. Ever since that day, The Ghost of Tom Joad has been a huge part of my repertoire. In my, all of my solo shows, I've played it as a centerpiece. I've got to play it with Roger Waters and the Wounded Warriors Foundation. I got to play it with Jim James. I've played the song with Bonnie Raitt. You know, I've played it with reggae artists, and I've played it you know, on my own. Uh, but uh, the most recent time I played the song with Bruce and the E Street Band was at Giant Stadium, which at the time on that night was the longest Bruce Springsteen show ever. We gave it a, a, a hell of a run that night. It's always an honor and a pleasure to rock that great song uh, with my buddy Bruce Springsteen. For me, one of the marks of a great song is it 
continues to resonate and find new life over time. That's certainly the case with Ghost of Tom Joad, from the acoustic version on the Bruce record to the Rage Against the Machine version. We played that version opening up stadiums with U2 with with our kind of ragey riffs, uh, you know, and Zach's impassioned vocals and Tim and Brad's, you know, terrifying rhythm section pounding on that one to the hybrid version, um, you know, the electric Tom Joad with the he's playing with me playing with the E Street Band. Um, I mean, the one thing that I tried to do in the guitar solo of that song, Jameson notwithstanding, was was to like to channel to channel those souls, like to channel those lost souls on that on that highway, you know, from the Dust Bowl to the ones, you know, to die crossing the desert from coming from Mexico uh, to the ones, you know, to the inner city ones, homeless and hopeless. And to try through those 84 bars to give some kind of voice to those spirits. I try to lose myself in that solo and really use the guitar as a divining rod uh, to channel uh, those spirits and to see where it lands uh, melodically with each of the beats. I'm Tom Morello. This has been Maximum Firepower. I'm talking about the ghost of Tom Joe. Thank you very much for listening. Till next time, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower.